Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Jack Parsons was one of the world's first rocket scientists, inventing an early version of the very same fuel that was used to carry humans to the moon without ever having earned a formal degree. Parsons was almost entirely self-taught, Obsessive about rockets, he often took great risks in his experimentation with the explosives that would eventually take his life. Parsons was similarly voracious and impetuous in his study of occultism. He fancied himself a black magician, earned Aleister Crowley's approval and then censure as head of the Ordo Templi Orientis in Southern California, and believed he had conjured his second wife through his invocations to the goddess Babylon. He bridged the worlds of science and magic and died suddenly and tragically, leaving the strange spectacle of his life for his admirers and detractors to puzzle through. Over the course of the next two episodes, we shall bring you the jet-propelled occult confession of one Jack Whiteside Parsons. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant for our secret order of alchemical actors, joined this day by the Literal sisters, who I don't think you've heard together in a while, dear confessors, but here they are, Brie Literal, our metallurgic prophet. Hello. And Olivia, our grandmaster. Hello. What's up, Literals? Not the much. <laughs> cool well so brie now this is your first episode uh with me that you uh, assisted with research on i'm really excited for it because this was one of my favorite ones to do research for and i really wanted to say a lot of things about it in other episodes we've recorded before now <laughs> <laughs> oh you uh, yeah i think people heard yeah you really want to talk yeah. about parsons and and a certain other character who we'll get to in a little while yes uh, we are going backwards chronologically, friends, so uh, this is the beginning of our Occultist by Request series, um, and I want to say that uh, we did our best to honor as many requests as possible. I've been collecting requests for years. I still do collect requests. If I don't get to your thing this season, that may be because I found a place for it in another season, or it could just be lingering on my list to get to at another time and day. Uh, but, you know, we got to as many of these as we could. It, so if what I'm trying to say is if you requested an occultist who happened to be closer to our day and time than Jack Parsons, then I'm sorry, didn't make the list. Jack Parsons is the closest to the 21st century. All right. Uh, Olivia, you excited for Jack Parsons? Um, uh, yes, sure. <laughs> I love the confidence. I'm like, I feel so... I'm so, so hungry right now. I'm sorry. I'm like, okay, I'm here. I'm here. All right. Let's pledge it out. We, the, the members, members of the Secret, secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as, as we know it. it. Do you want to get something to eat, Olivia, before we launch into this? Um, well, my food is just across the room staring at me. It's fine. 
All right, here we go. Before we get into this, I just want to say, for those of you who were worried about Olivia before the pledge, we did say she could go ahead and eat before we got into this. So Olivia is uh, well and truly fed at this moment. Olivia, you ready to do this? You want me to talk Swallow. Me swallow. Talk just swallow. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes there's not a big difference between recording with you guys and raising a one and a four-year-old. I don't know <laughs> who you consider to be which. But... <laughs> swallow, just I... swallow. <laughs> I thought you were going to let me eat, and then I would come back. Well, yeah, you can, but you got to at least, you know, Tell people. you just made people worry okay. about your hunger. This is my PSA. I'm okay, guys. I have... Actually, I don't want to tell people what I have, because it might be controversial, but... You know what? what you... I, I'm eating. Okay, I'm admitting my oh. skin. Yeah, You're... I'm gonna have to bleep that out. Honestly, yeah, you are. Jack Parsons was born Marvel Whiteside Parsons to mother Ruth and father Marvel Senior on the second of October, nineteen fourteen. Ooh, an October birthday. His mother divorced his father after learning he'd been involved with a prostitute and she forbid contact between the Marvels so that Marvel Sr. decided reluctantly to return to his ancestral home in Massachusetts. Mother Ruth so wanted to purge her ex-husband from her son's life that she started calling her boy John. Father and son would not be reunited until more than 20 years later, after Marvel Sr. had joined the military, become a champion shot, and pursued Pancho Villa during the Mexican Revolution. The meeting between father and son would be the only reunion in either man's lifetime, and each of them would go on to meet a tragic end. Jack's father suffered a heart attack and was told that he had 24 hours to live. The diagnosis proved false, and Marvel Sr. lived on, but he was so traumatized by the experience that he attempted suicide and was committed for melancholia where he uh, died of meningitis in that psychiatric ward in 1947. So much for dad. That sucks. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to take a break for a second to say that sucks. It that sucks. was such that was such a disingenuous sounding that sucks. It was well, actually very genuous because was that the right word genuous? I don't word? know. Sure. Kind of, okay. It was fun. It was a fun play on words there. I, I, my heart does go out to Marvel Senior. I, I think it's rough. Yeah. Like he, I guess he had a little indiscretion there, but it was with a prostitute. Uh, I don't know. I guess I. Who I don't, didn't I don't. back then? What time? Right, is everybody. This? It was nineteen fourteen. He was born yeah. in nineteen fourteen. Yeah. I stand so this by is my like statement. The, the teens mm -hmm. world war one era so you yeah, know everybody's got a prostitute banned from seeing his son ever again it, yeah then, then it just gets sort of dark after there yeah i feel like a lot of the stories that way though well a missing dad does does conjure all sorts of interesting things in in people's lives or missing yeah. mom or overbearing mom anyway I, I think we've got an overbearing mother situation here Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we'll get, we'll get to that near the end. Yeah. It's not really clear uh, in the story that we're about to tell here. It only becomes clear at the end. Um, there just aren't many details about Jack's relationship with Ruth, but his attitude toward women, I think, reflects that he there was a very strong female influence in his life. Mm -hmm. So after uh, Ruth, his mother Ruth, divorced 
uh, Marvel Sr., Jack's mother's wealthy parents came to live with them. They purchased a mansion in Orange Grove in Pasadena, and Jack had a privileged upbringing, so we were feeling sad for him, but stop. Uh, he was surrounded by domestic servants. Oh. Uh, yeah. So, in his Orange don't Grove like mansion. That. <laughs> you don't like domestic servants? No, I can't say anything. <laughs> it's like Mary Poppins, you know, is the... the chambermaid and the cook and the the nanny parsons had (laughs) it's the aristocracy man i can't say anything about it except that's the way it was yeah yeah it still can be right there's still people who are domestic servants that's a job that's a full-time gig yeah but i feel like it's not as bad as it was wasn't there a whole show about domestic servants on a yacht am i making that up you might be but that Sounds oh, okay. like something somebody could have made. Yeah. Below deck? Ab- yeah, above deck? Yeah, that's, see? that's a show, yeah. Yeah, that's domestic servants right there. Anyway, Parsons had three lifelong passions, rockets, science fiction, and the occult. Despite being a poor student, he had a real knack for rocketry and even carried on phone correspondence with Werner von Braun. Uh, if you don't remember, we did a whole episode that uh, touched on Werner von Braun, former Nazi rocket scientist brought over to the United States and, and helped develop our, our uh, rocket program here to go to the moon. A problematic figure, let me say. <laughs> let me just... most, most scientists <laughs> at that time were because of that same reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were either building atom bombs for the U.S. or former Nazis. Right. He grew up, Jack, though, grew up building cherry bombs and other small explosives, not atom bombs. His first partner in rocketry was a guy named Ed Foreman, who he met as a child. Parsons, who was dropped off at school by his grandfather's limousine, was often bullied. I can't imagine why. (laughs) Right? Oh, my goodness. That's like a billboard for, like, you know, give me a wedgie. And Foreman. Punch me in the face. Right. (laughs) Punch a rich kid. Yeah. Uh, Foreman, two years older than Parsons, stepped in to help little Parsons. So that was, he's a, Foreman's really a nice guy. I think there's, we can love Foreman. Ed Foreman's just a nice guy across the board. Foreman was entertained by the well-read Parsons and helped him spend his allowance, but the two were separated when Parsons was sent to military school. Parsons' stay in military school was brief, however, because shortly after arriving, he uh, blew up the toilets with cherry bombs and was promptly expelled. Yeah, it checks out. So he went, he went back to his hometown school, which he had left, you know, in part because of the bullying, but the bullies gave up bullying him because he had the street cred now of having been kicked out of military school. Damn right he did. Right? Like, there's no better way. So his parents sort of, like his mom and grandparents, that that was a good move. Just send him to military school and let him get kicked out. Yeah. Parsons' grandfather, uh, the closest that Jack ever had to a father figure, died in 1931. So that's what, he's about 15-ish years old? Am am I doing my math there right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 16, let me see. Uh, 16, 17, something like that. Late teens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mid to late teens. The grandfather's health had been compromised by the stresses of the market crash. So the family had been very wealthy, but their wealth had fallen into decline as a result of the stock market. So, you know, it's it's fun to be rich and all, but if you're rich, you probably have all your money in the stock market. So if the stock market crashes, bad news for you. Uh, so Parsons had to actually go to work. So although he had this privileged, rich childhood, suddenly 
as he's entering his late teens, early 20s, he's uh, out of luck. He's got no money. He took a job at the Hercules Powder Company in Los Angeles, where he could get paid to play with explosives. He also enrolled at Pasadena Junior College, but was only able to stay one semester because he was helping to pay his family's bills. We'll still count him as a community college guy. He went to work. Yeah, yeah right? He mm-hmm. went. He went. He would have stayed, but for the fact that he he had to pay the bills. Right. He went to work at the Hercules plant in Pinole near San Francisco, or Pinole. You can correct me, California listeners, uh, making $100 a month. That's not too bad in 1930-ish. Get that bag. Yeah. What's that? Get that bag. Get that $100 bag. Do you think they paid him in ones in a bag? Is that what the... No, so. it's... Wait. <laughs> no, what Rob, does it like, mean? Get that bag. Like, get... No, you're cooler than... You guys are much cooler than me. What is that? I am mean? not, oh. apparently. I, Olivia's I the coolest. Know. Yeah. Uh, get that bag. The bag I don't of what? Know what that stems get from? I would love bag. for someone to tell me, but it's like like a purse. Like now you can afford to buy an expensive purse. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I've never heard this be said before. It's, it's I, the first like, I've heard. Say maybe this. it's just in a lot of like rap songs. I'm gonna let me look this up. Get Olivia Literal, expert bag. at rap music. Oh, stop. No, 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 no. <laughs> I am not claiming that. You can send Olivia all your questions Apparently, about Get rap. That Bag is a song, but that's not what... Urban Dictionary, <laughs> Get That Bag. Uh, oh, getting a large man. amount of money. Quote, did you get the bag for the last job you did? That's... I think I, yeah, so my initial interpretation is correct. I think that we're talking about a sack of money, right? Yeah. Yeah, Oh, that's, I'm going with that. But get the bags in is different, apparently. Get the bags (laughs) in, it says basically means buy a a bag of cocaine or. or, or Oh, no, 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 no. Different thing. Don't get the bags. <laughs> Those get kind the of bags. Back. You can let's, get that let's... bag, but don't get the bag. Don't in. get the bag. Don't bring them in. Just get the bag. So I the... think we're too white for this conversation. We're getting ahead of ourselves too. Those I'm kinds of the, the multiple bags. Right the bags that you bring in are going to come later in this story. Is this what gets us canceled? I, is this finally it? Yeah. Stop laughing. They're going to have to. That's going to be a very convoluted cancel, but good we luck. Get canceled on Jack Parsons. Good luck. Of all the episodes. Anyhow, Parsons was admitted into Stanford's chemistry department, but the price was higher than he expected, and he was never able to enroll. Despite his inability to attain a formal education, he read chemistry books for fun and became increasingly expert in the field. He met and married Helen Northrup in 1935 when he was 20 and she was 24. They moved to a little house on Terrace Drive in Pasadena where Parsons kept his own personal explosives laboratory on the porch. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, the shed. Nope, on the porch. On the porch. It's just on the porch. front or back? Uh, Well, it doesn't say. I I picture the front porch, personally. Yeah, that's what I picture. I yeah. feel like it entirely matters. But yeah, like people are going yeah. by on their bicycles and stuff, and he's waving as he's like mixing stuff up, and there's little, you know, little pops of yeah. smoke They're coming like, up. He's just doing lab. That's shit. just Jack doing his lab stuff, playing with his chemistry set on the porch. Just Jack. 
As you do. Hey there, Jack. Have a good one. His obsession with creating a rocket eventually led him to Caltech. Parsons and Foreman visited the California Institute of Technology in hopes of connecting with scholars who might help them with their rocketry and were directed to graduate student Frank Molina. Now, we're going to get into this, but you have to bear in mind, rocketry at this point in time is sort of like going to a university right now and saying you would like to study parapsychology or you want to study, I don't know, UFO aerodynamics. It, so, yeah. maybe? No, 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 no. If you okay. wanted to study parapsychology, you should have done it in the 40s, <laughs> but we don't do it anymore. So, yeah, like people would look at you cross-eyed. Sure. They would think you're nuts. No, rockets are like science fiction nonsense. They don't. That's not a real thing. So that's why, you know, Parsons is sort of like kicking around on the edges of higher education. But he needs people who know math and chemistry to develop rockets. So he keeps like coming up against these, you know, major institutions to get his hands on these people and their knowledge. Even though he himself is becoming quite knowledgeable, he still needs help. And he finds it uh, in a guy named Theodore von Karman, as well as Frank Molina, who's a graduate student. But von Karman is a professor there, and he's a Hungarian aerodynamics expert. Now, von Karman is most famous uh, for having explained, in the United States anyway, for having explained how wind had caused the collapse of the $6 million Tacoma Narrows Bridge. He did a fascinating sort of experiment, and he, he showed how the bridge had literally been blown over. Everyone was like, no, wind can't blow over a bridge. And then he was like, no, of course it can. Here, this is how it happened. I can't explain it because I don't know math, but uh, it's cool. So he said, von Karman said, this Hungarian guy at uh, Caltech says, yeah, we'll do rockets. Let's do rockets. He was the head of the Guggenheim, Narrow, uh, Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at Caltech, also known as Galkit or Galsit. <laughs> Sir, I just don't. That's weird. Well, my scholars out there will tell you uh, <clears throat> at any college on in, in America, we have all kinds of truly unpleasant acronyms for things. And nobody knows what any of the letters stand for, but we keep repeating them to each other. Galsit. The group would exist only informally for several years using the college's equipment, but having no official relationship with Caltech. So that's the other thing. So von Karman is like, yes, I'll sponsor you, <laughs> but just as like a hobby. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. this isn't real. We're not actually. The college doing itself this. is not getting behind this research. Right. Molina, who is a graduate student there, Parsons and Foreman, who are just random guys off the street who are hanging out on campus, <laughs> began yeah. their work by conducting experiments at the Arroyo Seco above the Devil's Gate Dam outside of the campus. They were eventually allowed to transfer their work to the campus, uh, and then they had to return to the Arroyo Seco when a series of wayward explosions upset campus authorities, which earned them the nickname the Suicide Squad. Oh, what yeah. the hell? Yeah. Cuz they were really fuck they were really messing around and trying to find out. Like they were not. Yeah, like imagine <laughs> you're on campus with me and we're just like, you know, doing some theater stuff and then there's it sounds like uh, a building collapses next door to us. Right. There's like actual bombs going. They didn't off. collapse a building, but yes, it it would be, yeah, these enormous yeah. explosions that shake the windows. <laughs> 
Their early work was funded by laboratory assistant Weld Arnold. This is a fascinating little tidbit. Uh, Weld Arnold, uh, who he was just he was just a lab assistant, right? He's not a professor or anything. He's a regular guy. So despite his modest salary, he gave the Suicide Squad $1,000. None of the guys even knew how he had $1,000. Probably he'd been saving up for years and years and years to even have $1,000, and he just handed it over to Parsons and Friends. Why, though? The, the, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of give you a hint. We don't really know, but... His contribution allowed the crew to devote more time to their work on the rockets and less time to their day jobs at the various, you know, powder plants around California. Sure. And Arnold's condition was that he be allowed to serve as their official photographer. So I think he just wanted to like play with rockets and take yeah. pictures of them. Weird. Yeah. He gave up his life savings <laughs> okay. to watch them play with rockets and take pictures. That's some like rich person shit, right? Except that he wasn't rich; he's just a regular guy. Uh, I think it's more so somebody at the time not used to seeing something and wanting to see it, and they have a direct line to it. So and not being married it. and not having children, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Also, yeah. you don't have a life, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a a life outside of your your. It's kind of moving. Self, In 1938, really. this guy, Weld Arnold, mysteriously disappeared and was never seen by any member of the Suicide Squad again. He just vanished. Not rocket related. He just wandered off. Just gone. Yeah. Wild story. Did that's weird. Yeah. Okay. He gave him a thousand dollars, took pictures for a while, and then disappeared. Okay. What a Good guy. For him. What a yeah. life. Crazy yeah. stuff. That same year, Jack Parsons gained notoriety in the press when he testified at the trial of police intelligence captain Earl Kynet for the attempted murder of private detective Harry Raymond. Earl Kynette had attempted to use a car bomb to kill the private detective. This is so like Raymond Chandler film noir kind of stuff. <laughs> this police captain uses a car bomb to murder a, a, a private detective. <laughs> uh, but he failed. The guy yeah. survived. It was an attempted murder. Uh, and, and they called Jack Parsons to explain how he did it. Parsons built a replica and demonstrated to the jury how it was constructed and how it worked. He was the expert witness. Even though, let me say again, my man is a high school diploma. He attended one semester yeah. of community college. That's it. Kynette and his two assistants, uh, the, the captain, were ultimately convicted and sent to prison. In 1939, the National Academy of Sciences became interested in Carmen Molina Parsons and Foreman's research. So he's starting to gain some credibility. People are getting interested in his work, not, even, not, not just in the legal system, but now scientists. Rockets, as I mentioned, were associated with fanciful sci-fi experiments, and they were considered non-scientific. And so Carmen and Molina decided to rename their rocket research experiments as experiments in jet propulsion. And oh. yeah, how about that? <laughs> when you need to, I was about to say, when you need to read <laughs> that essay, like word count. Like. <laughs> Let's call it jet propulsion. <laughs> uh, and the NAS, National Academy of Sciences, gave the crew $1,000 to create a system for jet-assisted takeoff. So just that little tweak in the words. And so, the, the, the National Academy was I like, mean, okay. all right, we can do, we weren't going to do rockets, but, but okay, we'll do jets. <laughs> fair. Yep. That's fair. Jet propulsion. Jet propulsion. Jet propulsion. I, I, I mean, we, we see this a lot in, in different, like psychology today, like people who are getting closer to parapsychological kind of stuff, the mind-body connection, and like they come up with these terms 
I, I think it's a regular thing in academics. Like if, if something is considered to be taboo or not, uh, not research worthy, sometimes we can tweak the terminology and okay, now it's cool. So jets, like jet propulsion, when we think about, uh, we've been talking about rockets, but really Parsons' early application of his work was in jets. When, when you see the jets in the sky that leave the long trail. <laughs> the... I was about to say, can, I'm going to be the person that just is dumb for everyone who's questioning. What's the difference? What's, what's a jet? What is? So a jet uses rocket fuel to get off the ground, but an airplane uses regular gasoline. So a jet is, but what's the difference between a jet and a rocket ship then? Very little. What's the, I don't it's even know what a where jet looks like. I, I mean, the difference between a jet and a rocket ship is just that the rocket is pointed at space and the jet is going to go around the, yeah. in the atmosphere. So a jet yeah. is just a better plane? It's a faster one. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Haven't, cool. haven't you seen Top Gun? Nope. With World War II looming, the military was... <laughs> was that, like, really stupid? What? <laughs> no, I don't think it was stupid. I just think it's, it's... When you go to explain the difference, it makes it sound stupider than it is. I think I most know, people like... don't understand the difference. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Cool. Right. Okay. I don't just think checking. it's a common yeah, knowledge. People aren't the walking way you were that. talking... Okay. Because, well, cool. because it's very... It is ultimately quite simple, the difference, but... But we yeah, it's not like regular sure. people knowledge. You know what I mean? Like wh where pepper comes from. Like it's, it's, just, it's a simple answer, but people don't generally walk around knowing what a peppercorn looks like or do that. I don't know. Sure. I guess if you work in food service. Anyhow, what were we talking about peppercorns? Um, uh, jet, jet propulsion. propulsion. You're talking about jet propulsion. With World War II looming. And I'm sure that, you know... My aerodynamic friends out there could correct something that I said, but it's basically that. With World War II looming, the military was concerned with finding ways to get planes off the ground faster, since long runways were often difficult to find in war zones. So this will help you understand even a little better, Olivia, the history of why we had to come up with jets. So you got these tiny little runways. If you got a regular plane and you get the gas going, you really got to get the propellers going. You got to take a, you know, this long trip to get to the point where you can get airborne. You really got to get the engines going. But if you got these jet rockets full of fuel that you're just going to light on fire and it's going to boom, burst you forward, then you can get off the ground faster because you're going to get more speed. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? That actually does help a lot. Cool. Okay. And and so now you can see like a rocket and a jet is basically yeah. the same idea because a rocket, it basically, it, it, until we got to the point where we were, you know, bringing rockets back from space in one piece and that sort of worked we were really just shooting them up into space and then letting the astronauts fall back to Earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically what it was. So you had your jet fuel and you shot them up. Yeah, and then they, they fell. They fell out yeah. of the sky later. <laughs> sort of amazing, right? Now it, it makes you think about, you know, Buzz Aldrin and, you know, <laughs> in a different way now. Um, so their initial tests proved successful and their budget was increased to $10,000 with Foreman Molina. Ooh. Yeah, cool. A bag. A bag. That's, that is a, that's a whole ass bag at least. <laughs> it's one fine bag. They have the whole bag now. <laughs> so Foreman Molina and Parsons became the nation's first government sanctioned rocket research group. Go off. Combining potassium nitrate with charcoal and sulfur, Parsons created his first consistent rocket fuel. 
So that's why you see he needs chemistry and he needs a little bit of physics and he needs some math. He's, he's putting all these pieces together to come up with the perfect rocket fuel. Well, are you going to tell us what rocket fuel is made out of? Well, there you go. It's, that's it. It's nitrate, charcoal, and sulfur. But that was in the early days. So yeah, I'm going to tell you a variety of recipes for rocket fuel today. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> but that's how you started, you know, in, in 1942. So in 1942, at Molina's suggestion... They replaced gasoline with aniline, which is a highly toxic substance that could be absorbed through your skin. Oh, my God. Yeah, you had to be okay. really careful with this stuff. Uh, and this allowed them to develop the first liquid-fueled rockets because you, you, charcoal and stuff was in the other one and nitrate, so it was you know a lot of solids, but now this was pure liquid. Oh, okay. Orders from the military just started pouring in. <laughs> And the, we'll take five, we'll take 10. Because, you know, World War II and all. The crew decided to form yeah. their own company, the Aerojet Engineering Corporation, since none of the major plane manufacturers would take them on. So even now, these guys have proven concept, right? They've developed a rocket field that the military wants them to build planes for. And, you know, Lockheed and them are, are saying... No, thanks. That's okay. We really don't want you blowing up anything on our property. So we're going to pass on hiring you guys to build jets here. Parsons remained troubled by the volatility of his rockets. I mean, in addition to these engineering corporations, Parsons was aware that there was still some dangerous aspects to this work. If they were exposed to the cold, the rocket fuel would crack apart and it would explode on ignition rather than propel the thing forward it would just burst parsons started thinking on the ancient war weapon greek fire you guys ever heard of this greek fire i have so what do you know what do you know about um i don't know anything too technical about it i've just like in any sort of like history thing it's something that's always kind of referenced as kind of like yeah it was like a naval weapon yeah yeah launch it to set fire to neighboring ships yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking Greek at a picture of it. Oh. It's, oh my god! It's rough. Yeah. It's like uh, it's like holes in the bottom of the ship, and it's like shooting out just like flames. Yeah, like liquidy flames. There's probably few things more terrifying than your ship burning down at sea. Holy yeah, I, oh my! It's god. like a it's a worst. <laughs> the worst thing that somebody needs to get james cameron on that movie (sighs) anyhow greek fire um so parsons was sort of meditating on this this war war weapon that was used in in ancient times um and the rumors about it was that it contained naturally occurring asphalt that's what made it work legend has what what is naturally occurring how does that naturally... I thought asphalt was, like, man-made. I think with all the asphalt you would see today on parking lots and stuff is man-made, but I guess theoretically in the earth, with enough heat and the right, you know, mineral components, you can you can find it. So the Greeks probably just, like, dug into these pits, pulled it up, and oh. set fire to it, and threw it at the Phoenicians. <laughs> yeah, what we have now is probably just a thing that we make based on that. It's not something that we derived out of our own creation, I can't imagine. Legend so. has it that he was watching roofers apply the asphalt we're talking about the man-made to build uh, near the test site when the idea dawned on him. By replacing b- black powder with asphalt, 
Parsons solved his problem and invented a castable rocket fuel that would eventually help lift a rocket ship into space. Not in his lifetime. Yeah. So that's how he solved the Sad. cracking apart problem with this, with this asphalt. In 1944, the company was under tremendous strain, his company, due to the volume of military orders that just kept coming, and they needed an investor. The General Tire and Rubber Company agreed to invest. <laughs> but, yeah, okay. not, so no, you know, none of the plane companies or, or, you know, aerodynamics or anything. Parsons and Foreman, however, had to be forced out of the company for the sale to proceed. Foreman sold his share of the company for $11,000. Parsons sold his as well, probably for the same sum. We don't know exactly how much Parsons received, but there's no good reason to believe that he would have received more. These guys, remember, had a high school diploma, uh, and, and they were these you know wild-eyed rocket guys blowing stuff up and innovative thinkers and, and that sort of thing. So the General Tire and Rubber Company, in order to get them to purchase the rocket business... They needed to get rid of these two. That was one of the conditions of the sale. Only Molina, you know, the graduate students, those kind of guys could could hang out. I get it, but also like still very dumb. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in less than twenty years, the shares that Parsons and Foreman sold would be worth millions of dollars. And they got eleven thousand each. Wow. Yeah. That's that's, that's losing your bags insane. right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> you started a monster <laughs> i know monster in a bag he formed the ad astra engineering company with ed foreman to continue to experiment with explosives while foreman got into the laundromat business so this is the same company What? <laughs> <laughs> yes. so <laughs> he was like parsons was like foreman i have to keep making rockets let's make a company and make rockets and foreman was like Okay, cool. Well, well, you can make rockets. I, I'm actually kind of interested in in laundry. So can we can we do laundry too in the company? And Parsons is like, yes, yes, just let me can do rockets. And Forms like, okay, cool. Can you imagine? <laughs> okay, okay, Jack, I'll go over here and do some laundry, and, and you keep building them explosives. All right. <laughs> it's sort of like uh, Breaking Bad. The <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Parsons is in the basement. He has to be let in in secret. <laughs> At any moment, the basement could explode and kill everyone in the laundromat. Uh, the Aerojet Corporation oh became the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which later uh, NASA would take over, become the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So the company that they sold to General Tire and Rubber would become a part of NASA. Uh, there's a that's crazy uh, i'm gonna make you sad again though because i looked this up uh and and actually after i'd written this episode someone had commented on this on our discord as well jack parsons is not named on the official government site about the history of the aerojet uh, jet propulsion laboratory that's insane he's That just doesn't even make sense. I mean, it does. Like, I he's I been know. written out of their history. I'm going to suggest some reasons for that, but he's theoretically subsumed in the phrase "several graduate students led by Frank Molina." That's how they talk about the founding. Oof. But he wasn't a graduate student, so right. I'm, I'm being kind of generous to NASA there. Uh, by the way, if you go to Wikipedia. 
They acknowledge him as a principal founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So, what's up, NASA? I'm going to give you my guess. Uh, I think NASA may be squeamish about citing Parsons' integral role in developing the JPL. I mean, there wouldn't be a JPL without him. If he hadn't gone to Caltech with Ed Foreman, there wouldn't be a JPL. I mean, they don't mention Ed Foreman either. It's it's obnoxious. I, I think NASA's squeamish about it because of Parsons' Say it with me now. Life long involvement in occultism. Right. I mean, it's an age-old story. When I did my research, maybe I've told this story before. It's, I got so many stories from my work with occultists over the years. But when I did my dissertation work, a major part of being in this spiritualist community, which, you know, is people from the age of like 15 up to 80, these kindly, you know, very chill, talk to dead people, human beings. But they all talked about the stigma and how they're not comfortable discussing their beliefs outside of certain circles because of the way they'll be judged or or whatever. It's, it's, it's just how the society and culture is. There is a stigma, and, and I think that's, why Parsons suffers on the NASA website and maybe in the history in general, as far as his involvement in jet propulsion. Yeah. I think that would make the most sense. Unfortunately, let's go ahead and get into Jack Parsons and occultism. So I've given you a pretty good outline of his rocketry. I want to change gears and and start on the occultism because you know, that's what we're all here for, right? At the age of 13, he made what he described as a successful attempt to conjure the devil. <laughs> oh, we just You don't know how much fun I had reading right. that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. That was on my end of the research. I was literally just like reading the document and all of a sudden, it just as suddenly was like, when he was 13, you know? Conjure the, the devil. There's no details about that, right, Bree? That's just that just sits there. No, there was none. <laughs> it was just that. What statement. the devil and said? Like, if he wondered how a 13 year old had summoned him in the first place, just uh, sudden him, uh, uh, just conjured him, and then it went on to really was interested in pulp fiction <laughs> right. magazines such as The Amazing Star, and I was like, "What? No, go back to the devil. Why are we? What's I mean, happening? I can't help but wonder if this is like a, a Robert Johnson kind of situation. What if Jack Parsons and the Devil made a deal this day, and Jack Parsons said, "If you just let me invent a rocket that can go to the moon, then you can take my life before I hit the age of forty. Uh, you know, what if?" It would check out. (laughs) It's like Faustus. The devil came for him. Okay. So a decade later, he's 23 years old. He stumbled across a copy of Aleister Crowley's Conks Um Pox on the shelves of a used car dealer in Pasadena, California, where where you're going to find your copies of Aleister Crowley ritual manuals. (laughs) Yeah, where else else do you expect that? So he went to visit Hollywood's Agape Lodge Number 2, which was the only functioning lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis at the time. Let me say that again. The only functioning lodge, like on Earth. So I don't know why it was number two. Parsons became... <laughs> <laughs> that's, I didn't notice that, actually, that's, when I wrote that. That's, a, that's, a, that's some uh, <laughs> Alistair Crowley madness there. 
Parsons became particularly close with Wilfred T. Smith, uh, who was 53 years old at the time and was the head of the lodge. In 1941, Parsons was initiated into the OTO along with his wife, Helen. He began giving talks on behalf of the OTO and quickly became the order's most successful recruiter. In June, Helen went on vacation with her mother, and Parsons began a relationship with her half-sister. I know, this is jumping. We're doing some jumps here. Oh my. (laughs) That was the 17-year-old Betty. Let me say that again. The 17-year-old Betty. My man is in his 20s. When Helen returned, I mean, she's close to being legal, but still... Still not Not. legal. When Helen returned, Parsons Mm -hmm. and Betty did nothing to hide the affair since it was in line with OTO sexual ethics. Remember, Aleister Crowley is hiding in the background of all this. And Helen started a relationship with Parsons' occult mentor, the 53-year-old Wilfred Smith, with Parsons' blessing. I guess he's not 53 anymore. He's older. So now everyone's in an open relationship. I mean, that's fair. That's It's fair, yeah. It all works out. Helen was cool with it. Yeah, it's just, it's so strange. I don't know if Helen was cool with it, but yeah, it, it, it's an odd situation, but it, it seems to be working okay. It's not exactly the same, I guess, if I'm sleeping with your sister. You're just like... It's weird. Yeah, no. Right? It, it's yeah. Up, but, uh... It's, you can sleep with your husband's mentor, but yeah, the sister. not your it's wife's sister. Cut. Parsons rented the home of former lumber millionaire Arthur Fleming, located on the same street where he'd grown up in Pasadena, and relocated the core of the OTO to this new headquarters. Parsons' charm and the Order's new home helped to recruit 40, 40 new members by the end of 1942. That's a lot. Yeah. It's almost as many uh, as we have alchemical actors. We don't have 40, I'm kidding. I was, I was about to like, say, we don't where have Where is he hiding? Oh, <laughs> where, where I have about uh, 30 of them uh, here in the basement. Uh, yeah, they oh. they do the editing for us. Are they alive? Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I, okay. I throw them bananas and they edit for us. Uh, kind of like, anyway. Crowley was growing impatient with the lack of money Smith was funneling from the California. I don't really have editing slaves in the basement. Don't write to me. <laughs> I was teasing. He's saying that now because he's trying to backtrack, but don't believe it doesn't take 30 people to edit this it takes 20 i have 20 banana people editing the to fund his various projects he forced because olivia every third word is actually a curse word so that is half of what those people do oh come on give me a break I can't say anything. I openly censored myself. I literally almost dropped the F-bomb and said messing Yeah, they see, they're saying almost. So. It's actually that huge crew of banana-fed editors that's handling this. I'm authentic. Too fun. <laughs> she's authentic, she's, Rob. She's an authentic lover of rap music. To fund his various projects, he forced Smith to step down, instructing him that he was... Okay, so let me... Let me I don't want to lose this at all. Yeah, let's back. I, I want to make sure we get this because this is a hilarious part of Aleister Crowley's life. So <clears throat> remember Wilfred Smith, 50-something Wilfred Smith is running the Agape Lodge. But C- Parsons is clearly, you know, younger, sexier, hipper, and he's bringing in all these people. So Crowley's got to get Smith out of the way. This old guy is not, not, not getting enough money for Crowley to spend on, you know, drugs and weird art or whatever. So... This is what he does. He, <laughs> he forces Smith, the old guy, to step down, instructing him 
she says to Smith, Smith, you're a god, and you have to go off to the desert to discover which god you are. Listen, man, I really love that you're running my lodge in California and wish you could do it forever, but it turns out you're the incarnation of a god, but I don't know which one. Only you can find out. That would be like if I one day decided I wanted to, like, dethrone you. So I was like, hey, Rob, you you have to go to the desert. Because you're a god. (laughs) Oh. And you got to tell us which god you are. I had no idea. That's wonderful news. Smith left with Helen, and Curly temporarily replaced Smith with Parsons, who was now more or less exclusively involved with Betty. So off goes Parsons' wife to the desert, and now Parsons is with Betty, who is of age at this point. That's kind of weird still. It's not. Didn't start that way, but yeah, now we're exclusively... Well, this relationship's going to get stranger. Parsons having to... Bree knows where we're going. Parsons... Having (laughs) taken over the lease at his Orange Grove mansion, advertised for renters. So now he's got to make some money because now Alistair Crowley is asking him for cash. (laughs) Housing was so scarce that he could stipulate that he wanted only bohemians, artists, atheists, and anarchists. And he still filled all the rooms. Can you imagine? That's that's what the, the ad says. Wanted renters, apartments available. Bohemians, please, or atheists, or, or anarchists. anarchists. Artists allowed too. So really, we would make it. We would be allowed in. But yeah, yeah. between us, do we want to be in? We'll find out. <laughs> Although the elderly Crowley was a fan of Parsons, he worried over Parsons' fascination with black magic, so-called voodoo and witchcraft. So Parsons was way into this devil stuff. And and as you, if you've listened to our Crowley episodes, you'll realize that although Crowley is often painted as being a devil worshiper, he was not. So Parsons is a little too black magic-y for Aleister Crowley. Betty began to get in between Parsons and Crowley, his girlfriend, partner, sister, whatever, doing anything she could, by the way, to interrupt OTO meetings on the intermittent occasions when Parsons was able to hold them. Crowley turned his interest to Parsons' friend Grady McMurtry, having lost interest in Parsons, and Betty turned her interest to L. Ron Hubbard, having lost her interest (laughs) in Parsons. I... Almost had a mental no. breakdown reading this. He I got <laughs> dumped for oh my god. I think I literally called him the redhead in my notes to you. <sighs> well like I straight up was like Betty left him for the one and only L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> I, I found this so fascinating that I have decided that I am going to create a series on L. Ron Hubbard for our patrons. Uh because this relationship between Hubbard and Parsons is so bizarre, and Hubbard is. Hubbard is a strange character in general, but he, at this period, is just so wild. And we're going to hear about it. I'm not going to hide it from you. Today, in, today and, and next episode, you'll, you'll get a lot of this Hubbard weirdness. Because it's not like Betty just runs off with Hubbard. Hubbard is perhaps one of Parsons' best friends when, yeah. when Betty leaves him. It's real. They're real weird about it. Like I, the whole thing is bizarre. So in 1946, yeah. Parson joined up with Hubbard, 
for those of you who are wondering, he's the future founder of, of the Church of Scientology. Uh, and Hubbard and Parsons were going to work together on an occult project that Parsons called the Babylon Workings. Parsons. That's a sick name. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's ba- not yeah. Babylon with a Y. It's two A's. So B-A-B-A-Lon. Oh. He means, it, it, it makes reference though to okay. the ancient. Okay. Yeah. So Parsons met Hubbard through his interest in science fiction. Parsons had interned at Amazing Stories, the magazine responsible for publishing the first stories of major science fiction writers, including Isaac Asimov, Ursula Le Guin, and Roger Zelazny. At the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society, he befriended Robert Heinlein, also Ray Bradbury, and L. Ron Hubbard, who Parsons regarded as deeply occult and thelemic. Ray Bradbury, like... Fahrenheit. No. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, yes, indeed. I was like, that could be a really common name. Okay, that's fun. By the time Hubbard met Parsons, Hubbard had published several serialized science fiction novels, including Slaves of Sleep, about a man who travels to a parallel universe ruled by Ifrits, or a kind of djinn, uh, and Final Blackout, about a dystopian England after a world war. Hubbard came to live at Parsons' bohemian mansion, and they entered a business partnership, agreeing to share the profits of their various endeavors. Hubbard started a relationship with Betty, and the two began to share a bed, while Parsons pretended to follow his Crowleyite ethics and not mind it. (laughs) Yeah, no, this entire story is mostly just Parsons being like, yeah, it's fine. Everybody can sleep with my with Betty partner. <laughs> it's it's just good. it feels like it happens throughout the whole story. Well, it's not starting just Betty. with Helen, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Parsons asked Hubbard to be the scryer for his Babylon workings. Babylon referred to the Earth Mother, the Scarlet Woman, and the female initiator beyond the abyss. So he's very interested in this goddess figure. Parsons believed that the feminine energy of Babylon could balance his masculine Aeon of Horus as a new era was dawning. Uh, So the Aeon of Horus is a Crowleyite concept that we're entering this masculine period. So Babylon for Parsons would balance us out and get us to this perfect state of being. Or, I guess, better state of being. I don't know if he said perfect. By means of the Babylon rituals, Parsons hoped to invoke, conjure, or otherwise obtain his elemental mate. While Crowley and the OTO, yeah, he's looking for a lady. Because he's had no luck so far with the sisters. While <laughs> maybe, he should, maybe he should look at a, at a different family. Maybe he should find a woman who, you know, is not from that one house. While Crowley and the OTO certainly colored Parsons' occult ideas, he was also heavily influenced by science fiction, particularly the work of Jack Williamson. And this is where we're going to close today, just just to give everyone a sense, and then we'll we'll carry on with the Parsons story um, from here. So yes, I'm going to leave you hanging on Hubbard, but uh, the trade-off here is that you get to hear a little bit about this amazing story by Jack Williamson. Uh, which, you know, I had not planned, let me just say, a little bit of synchronicity. I had not planned to talk about Williamson's book. Uh, my wife and I happen to be in a bookshop in Annapolis that we go to fairly regularly, and I usually don't go downstairs at this bookshop. You know, Katie goes to the coffee shop. I order such esoteric books 
that I almost never buy books at a bookstore. I just can't. It's not what I'm currently reading or need to read. And I was not going to talk about Williamson's book, but I went downstairs and there on this old style, like turny uh, metal rack is Jack Williamson's book that inspired Jack Parsons. That's wild. It, it really is. Yeah. So Williamson was 20, by the way. Uh, so the science fiction writer, when he sold his first story to Amazing Stories, that was called The Metal Man. Parsons, what, not, not metal like you, Brie, metal like, you know, made of metal. Ah. Uh. Yes, a robot. <laughs> <laughs> Parsons' rocketry was inspired by one of Williamson's stories, by the way. And he wrote to the author. Parsons wrote to Williamson and eventually met him in Los Angeles. But it's not the rocketry that really inspired him from Williamson's work. Parsons was struck by a long story that Williamson had published in 1940 in the pulp fantasy magazine Unknown. And that story was called Darker Than You Think. Williamson revisited the book and expanded it into a novel in 1948. That's what I read. Some of Williamson's fellow science fiction writers regard it as his best book and a genre-defining work on the subject of werewolves. There's a surprise for you. Oh, I wrote a whole section on this. <laughs> fascinating. So, Parsons uh. was taken with the surreal and psychologically rich dream imagery of Williamson's book, also the main female character, the dark and dangerous red-headed witch April Bell. The story begins on an airport tarmac where Ms. Bell is masquerading as a journalist. The anthropologist Lamarck Mondrick is returning from the Al-Assa Al Desert, uh, where he has been seeking the root of all evil. Among the people waiting is Mondrick's wife Rowena, who was blinded while researching the leopard men of Sierra Leone. He and his team bring with him a mysterious green box, but the anthropologist dies on the runway presumably killed by the incognito witch, Ms. Bell, in front of a group of reporters, and his team refused to reveal what the giant box contains. Bell's method of murder is a small black kitten, which Mondrick is allergic to. The kitten is alive when the book begins, but when it causes a stir on the tarmac, April takes it back to an airport bathroom and kills it with a hairpin. What the f <laughs> I am going to go ahead now and take a giant liberty, confessors, please forgive me, because so much of this first chapter reminds me of a topic we have already covered that has nothing to do with Jack Parsons, but please bear with me, I just have to say this. In this extended first scene, Jack Williamson's book oddly presages Michelle Smith's tale of witchy abuse that she first related to her therapist, Lawrence Pazder. You have heard these names before because we have covered them as the people who essentially started the satanic panic with their story of a satanic abuse. Michelle Smith claimed that she had been satanically abused. Do you guys remember this in Victoria? Yeah, I do, Yeah. <laughs> So Pazder, her therapist, had researched in Africa and developed an interest in the leopard men. Remember I mentioned that the anthropologist's <laughs> wife had studied the leopard men. And Michelle Smith's story was full of dead kittens. There are, there's a scene, that the, the most one of the weirdest scenes in Michelle Smith's book is when she's showered with the bodies of dead kittens while she's inside an open grave. 
it's yeah. weird. It's weird. It's so fucking weird. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's difficult to say exactly what the relationship between Williamson's book and the Satanic Panic is. The two books, one fictional and the other a so-called recovered memory that was probably also mostly fictional, both describe a secret witch cult with conspiratorial designs. Williamson is not, to my knowledge, referenced in connection with Smith or Pastor, although it seems at least possible that one or both of them read his book before Smith began recovering visions of Canadian satanic abuse. I went back to my books and tried to find reference to Williamson's book. There are none, so... Maybe I'm hitting on something here. Uh, maybe we'll never know. I think you might be, because that seems a little bit too uh, too close. I don't know. It's weird. Williamson's book was, an, I believe, an inspiration for the Satanic Panic, not only with Smith and Pastor, but also with the traveling preachers, namely Johnny Todd and uh, Mike Warnke, who spun tales of a secret cabal of witches attempting to control the world. Remember those guys? We've got a secret witch cult in Williamson's book. A literal, I mean a literal, a fictional conspiracy. <laughs> a literal conspiracy. No, a fictional conspiracy is sitting in the middle of this book, and these guys are going to go off and preach that there is a secret witch cult conspir- you know, involved in a conspiracy to take over the world. As in a millenary conspiracy, these witches await the coming of a dark messiah to destroy humankind. The book just as a side note, had been reissued as a mass market paperback in 1969. I know that because my copy is from 1969, from that reissue. So Johnny Todd, Mike Warnke, they're going to come up in the 70s, early 80s. This book would have been in wide circulation as a mass market paperback. That doesn't mean that everybody was reading it, but it, it was certainly available. Getting back to the book itself. So that's it. Tangent over. <laughs> A weird Whoa. satanic panic tangent over. Yeah, you didn't know that was coming today, huh? Super, super weird. No, yeah. you brought up the book and it brought up other thoughts of mine from reading it, but not that. We're reading the part about it. That I oh, have. the witch cult? Yeah. Williamson imagines witches as a race of subhumans or superhumans, depending on how you're looking at, looking at it. Uh, they live among us disguised by humanity's collective scientific skepticism. So there's witches everywhere, but nobody believes in them. So they nobody figures out that they're witches. <laughs> These witches are at war with a secret group of academics trying to unmask and defeat them. I consider this a callback to Lovecraft's Miskatonic University with the librarians and stuff that would go to war with the evil interdimensional entities. Witches have their own distinct genetic history, uh, but have also interbred with humans in rites that have since been interpreted as the witch's Sabbath. And there are humans with a blend of Homo lycanthropus and Homo sapien genetics. Like conspiracy theorists, those who grasp the full reality of the witch breed become paranoid, unsure of which of their friends or relatives is secretly a member, uh, and, and can become dangerous or suicidal. Witches occupy positions of power and authority and often take pains to disprove the existence of witches in the guise of scientific materialism in order to keep themselves hidden. So it's the witches themselves that are telling you there's no such thing as witches. Ah, oh. reptilian shit. Yeah. Uh, uh, What's-his-face was writing the reptilians. The Conan the Barbarian guy was writing his reptilian stories right around the same time period. Mm. A preeminent psychologist plays an important role in Williamson's story as a man who constantly discredits tales of witch activity. 
But this makes the psychologist himself a suspicious character. And in fact, it turns out this psychologist is one of the witch cult. If Williamson's book is an inspiration for both Parsons in the 1940s and the anti-occult crusaders of the 1970s, then it all comes down to who the reader chooses to identify with, or rather, which aspects of themselves, since we're all a little witch and a little human. Is our witch blood evil, or is it simply a part of our nature? Although the humans in Williamson's stories spend a lot of time describing the witches as evil, when they bring up the witch hunts and equate even Joan of Arc to the witch people, you can begin to see why Parsons would have chosen the witches as his heroes. Because the witch hunts were bad. It was bad what we did to those people. And Joan of Arc was pretty cool. So if those are all, you know, the witches, well, they don't seem so bad after all. Contemporary psychics and even geniuses manifest the powers of witch blood, according to Williamson. Witches are a race of people that warred with humans, but have since become an oppressed group. The narrative favors the human perspective, but the witches are intelligent, attractive, and better still, magical. Sort of like the way we describe, just Marlowe's Faustus is described as being a book where God wins, but the devil has all the best lines. Similar idea. The witches possess the ability to project their minds as energy webs while they sleep. The Yo. forms. <laughs> Sorry. It's energy pretty cool. webs? Energy webs. That's, that's a sick, that's just such a cool term. Like, I'm trying to project my energy webs, you know? Yeah. It's a, imagine yourself like you're in bed and you like project a hologram of you. Cool. Yeah, but your hologram can take many forms. You could be a wolf, you could be naked you. Or Hell you could be did. a tiger, or you could Hell even be a, a pterodactyl. No, I'll be yeah. a wolf. I'll do that. You're really <laughs> starting to tap into the thing that really latched onto my brain in uh, my reading of this. The pterodactyl? No, the... Um, <laughs> it's. I'm just going to say three words. Where tiger mounting? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. What? <laughs> I'll get. We'll uh, get there. I'm sorry. There's a fourth word. Erotic. I should add. To oh, it is erotic. <laughs> On the theory. Yeah. Well, don't worry, Olivia. I'll explain it. On the theory that matter is mostly empty space, these witch wolves are capable of walking through walls and doors by manipulating the atoms that form them. So, if you thought werewolves werewolves were terrifying, imagine a werewolf who can walk through a wall. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> A pivotal scene in the book, as Bree mentioned, involves a male witch who has newly discovered his witchiness being ridden by a female witch while she is in her astral human form, naked human form, uh, and he is in astral tiger form. So the lady rides the tiger. Yeah, and then they go into the woods. And, well, so they are pursuing a human who threatens to expose the existence of the witches to the world, but they are only able to slash his throat when he is going around hairpin turns on a mountain, because this is also interesting. Williamson says that the probability of him dying is higher than. So they, they can manipulate probability. On a straight road, such an event would be less likely, and so the witches would not be able to manipulate the probability enough to cause his death. It's only when it's more likely that they can push the probability in the direction oh. they want it to go, you see? Huh, that's interesting. So, in this way, Williamson blends atomic physics, mathematics, and occultism, creating a kind of science fiction witchcraft that had an obvious appeal for a person with Jack Parsons' interests. This story was... <laughs> 
handmade for Jack Parsons. Not intentionally, but obviously Jack Parsons was going to eat this up. Ultimately, Williamson's book would form the core of Parsons' next serious relationship with a woman, with Parsons casting himself in the role of witch messiah and the woman, Marjorie Cameron, becoming his elemental wife, a creature not entirely of this world, destined to achieve great magical feats. I just want to take a minute at the end of the episode to acknowledge our sources for today's episode and uh, the next part two episode. And those are Eric Davis's Babylon Rising, Jack Parsons' Witchcraft Prophecy, three books by Parsons himself, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, The Book of Babylon and the Book of the Antichrist, and George Pendle's Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons. I'll leave you all there, dear confessors, until next time, next time, here on Occult Confessions, Jack Parsons does magic with L. Ron Hubbard, Marjorie Cameron arrives, and Jack Parsons meets his untimely end. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson, your supreme hierophant, joined by the Literal Sisters. Say goodbye, sisters. Bye. Bye, guys. We'll catch you for part two here on Occult Confessions.